Hi, this is Oliver Stone, and I've just done Books on Pod with Trey Elling about my memoir, Chasing the Light. It was a very interesting set of questions Trey asked, and I think you'll enjoy the show. Hello, readers. Tamoris Greco is a Mexican journalist and political scientist who has covered events in 94 different countries. His work includes two feature film documentaries, Watching Them Die and The Truth Shall Not Be Killed, and numerous books, the most recent of which is Killing the Story, Journalists Risking Their Lives to Uncover the Truth in Mexico. Tamoris, thank you for the time. How are you today? I'm doing fine. I'm doing fine. So what was the inspiration behind Killing the Story? Well, I was working as a reporter, as a foreign correspondent in the Middle East and other conflict areas for a while. And then I came back to my country in 2014. And when I was here, there was this crime against human rights, the disappearance of 43 students. And I got involved with the investigation along with other journalists. And while I was here, they kidnapped this journalist, a very humble guy. We didn't know him. But the fact that it was a kidnap changed our perception because normally when someone is killed, when someone is murdered, there is not much else to do. I mean, you cannot save that person. But when this person is kidnapped, there is a chance of actually doing something, you know, saving this life. And we mobilized, you know, with many journalists here, urging the authority to go after the kidnappers and find him alive. But the authorities didn't want to do anything. They even claimed that he wasn't a journalist, he was a taxi driver, as if taxi drivers didn't deserve to be sick and found. And four weeks later, his body appeared, dismembered by the side of the road. So I went to his small hometown, I met his family, I met his son, and I don't know, I felt deeply moved. And then with my group of professionals, we formed part of a group called Ojos de Perro Contra la Impunidad. We are a group of reporters and writers, filmmakers, photographers. We try to focus on issues that we consider of importance to Mexico, like inequality, impunity, corruption, human rights, women's rights, and environment. And we decided that we had to work on these crimes, you know, like many Mexican journalists were being persecuted, beaten up, or killed. And... uh, And so, yeah, we decided to focus on this. We started making a movie, a documentary. And after the documentary came, because of the research we did for the documentary, I decided to write this book. And that documentary was The Truth Shall Not Be Killed? Exactly. So how is the term cartel misleading regarding what's happening in Mexico and what has been happening going back decades now? You've read the book, obviously, (laughs) and I'm happy you're focusing on this. The thing is that there is something that we call the mythology of narco-trafficking. It doesn't mean that narco-trafficking doesn't exist or that organized crime doesn't exist. It means that it's not the way it's being portrayed. The term cartel was first used by prosecutors in Florida when they were prosecuting narco-trafficking organizations from Colombia. And these organizations had other names. But these prosecutors decided to call them cartels because in this way they could highlight what they consider a massive threat for the U.S. You know, at the time, the memory of the U.S. public opinion was the word cartel was fresh because the real cartel, you know, like the organizations of oil exporting countries, applied this embargo 
on oil, and it took the prices of fuel in the U.S. high. So people were afraid of cartels, and these prosecutors thought that it was a good idea to call them cartels, you know. And in this way, they managed to convince juries and all that. And the word was very successful. Like, it was a bestseller. We started using the word cartel all over, even when these are not cartels. A cartel is a group of producers of anything, you know, of oil or maybe marijuana or cocaine. But it's a group of producers that, that associate them horizontally to change the prices of this product. And as you know, the producers of drugs, they are not associated. They are killing each other. I mean, it's not like the whole market is being manipulated by these people. And also, it serves to create the idea that the main enemy of each country, you know, of each society, is narco-trafficking when there are other enemies. For the case of Mexico, there are bigger businesses being done, illegal businesses being done, or legal businesses being done against the people. Like, for instance, the case of extracting industries, you know, like mining companies that come and devastate a whole area and they exploit the resources. They don't let the community have a say in this. They are actually creating a lot of problems for communities, a lot of problems for environment. And the people can't do anything because there are state forces, you know, security forces, maybe police, maybe the army, deployed, justified by the supposed presence of narco-trafficking. What these forces are doing is that they are actually suppressing dissent. They are protecting the persecution in killing of human rights defenders, of environmental defenders, and of course, of journalists. Yeah, that's one of the uh, the most eye-opening things about reading this book, is just how complicit people are at seemingly every level, from the organized gang level, to the local police level, to the local, the statewide, and even the federal governments at times, and even also the military. And really, the last bastion, I guess, for those who are trying to protect the civilians, those who don't want any part of that, they just want to live their lives and make a living and provide for their family and, you know, have positive moments with their family and friends, is these journalists who are truly putting their lives on the line to report what is happening. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, what else? The thing is that Complicity goes to the highest levels of government. It's not like something that you can say, well, it's only the local mayor or the local governor, but it goes high as the main ministers, like secretaries of state. And it's something that has been concealed, you know, from the public view. When you use this mythology of narco-trafficking, what you create is a sense of the narco-traffickers against us. And against us includes the state, includes the politicians, includes the big mining companies or big businessmen. When in fact, if you really go deep, and journalists, this is what they are doing, if you really investigate deep into this, you will find out that there is no clear lines separating these big businessmen, these politicians, and the organized crime. The only thing is that organized crimes, the public, the well-known organized crime bosses, are also part of this mythology because they seem to concentrate the whole action in crime when they are partners, like close partners, with these people who pretend to be decent persons, who pretend to be honest or positive parts of society. And they are just the same, they're associates. 
we have to understand that we are talking about not cartels, but big time organized crime. And this involves people at the highest levels of every sector. Your first two chapters revolve around the life and death of Ruben Espinosa. Ruben yeah. covered crime in the state of Veracruz. He was concerned that there were two types of journalists in Mexico, those who served as a mouthpiece for the government and the riches and safety that went along with that. The other kind portrayed the actual reality, the truth of what was happening in the streets across Mexico. What are the challenges faced by the latter, these journalists who are trying to uphold the truth? Well, first is that these journalists are abandoned. The biggest media outlets, they are part of the game of power, you know, like now you can't say that they are mouthpiece for the government because the government has changed, you know, for the first time in a long time, since two years. But then they serve other powers. When the proprietors, when the owners of the media are not journalists, but are businessmen, and they are using mm -hmm. their media as a way to do business, Journalism is not their main concern. Actually, they don't want to do journalism properly, you know. Investigative journalism in the latest years in Mexico has achieved a lot of things, you know. Investigative journalists exposed all the corruption in the previous government. And I think when people went to vote two years ago and they voted against the group of parties associated with the previous government, they had in mind a lot of what investigative journalists had shown them. But on the other hand, who wants to do investigative journalism? The mainstream media, the most important media, they are not interested because investigative journalism exposes what the powers are doing and they don't want to change the status quo. On the other hand, those who really want to do investigative journalism, they don't have the means, they don't have the resources because it's expensive. So journalists have to gather in collectives or they have to get the support of foundations, or they have to find a way to do investigative journalism. But it takes a lot. It's difficult. Those who can don't want to do it, and those who want to do it, they find it difficult. And at the same time, those who do it are the most exposed in the society. I mean, the journalists who are not interested in doing investigative journalists are those who have the highest visibility, you know, the TV anchors, radio anchors, or the most relevant journalists of the most important papers. And they are, well, what we call the press for sale, you know, or the sold out press. And they don't really care about exposing corruption and exposing human rights abuses. And there is a big division among them and investigative journalism who are working at the street level. And the consequence is that if anything happens to journalists at the street level, the most visible journalists won't do anything. They won't raise their voices to protest. And also, the journalists who are at the street level exposing corruption, well, they are exposing themselves. There is a US-American journalist here in Mexico who is very, very committed to investigative journalism here. He's been living here for a long time, John Gibler. And he said something that really, I think, expresses what's happening here. You know, in Mexico, investigating a murder is more dangerous than committing the murder. <laughs> wow. That's a very sad statement right there. Yeah. And Ruben Espinosa put a lot of focus into uncovering the crimes committed by the governor of Veracruz at the time, Javier Duarte. 
What happened with organized crime during Duarte's reign and how did his administration address these issues? Well, the way he addressed organized crime is by empowering organized crime. You know, he used to be a part of a former administration. I forget the name of his former governor, but at the time, the Setas group, you know, a, a very dangerous organized crime group, the Setas, were empowered by Fidel Herrera. Fidel Herrera was this former governor. He, he was the governor from 2004 to 2010. And Javier Duarte was part of this, of, of this government. And in that time, the group of Los Zetas, they were privileged by that governor and they had the open field to grow. But when Javier Duarte came, he changed allegiances and he helped a different group that is known as Cartel Jalisco Nueva Generación. And he allowed them to come into the state and launch a massive war to fight the Zetas, you know, trying to control crime in the state. Journalists and the civil society and everyone, they were caught in the middle of this very vicious, violent, bloody fight. These groups would send messages to each other by killing tens of people and dropping the corpses on the streets of the main cities. You know, it's like you just woke up early that morning and went to the streets and you would suddenly bump into maybe 20 or 30 corpses. And this was real terror, real terror. And the government of Javier Duarte was part of this. His public security secretary, Arturo Bermudez, is now in prison, among other things, because he was the head of this death squad. A death squad comprised by police in uniform, by active duty police. And they would go and kidnap people or kill people, maybe because it was a reprisal for something these people did, or maybe just because they wanted to kidnap them for ransom. And the problem is that they suffocated their own business because people would pay the ransom and still they wouldn't get their relatives back. So that was the situation with Duarte. Duarte is now in prison as well as his secretary of public security, as I told you, but he's in prison because he committed fraud, massive frauds with public resources, but he is not there because of the crimes that were committed under his administration. And this includes crimes committed against journalists. In his six years in power, like from 2010 to 2016, about 20 journalists were murdered. 20 journalists. That is just mind-blowing to think about. And that number Crazy, yeah. includes Ruben Espinosa. Yeah. Eventually, Duarte and his thugs, they targeted Ruben, who ends up leaving Zalapa, Veracruz, for Mexico City. Despite that, they still tracked him down there and killed him in Mexico City. What was the significance of his death occurring in the capital far removed from Veracruz? Yeah, the thing is that for a long time, this city has been seen as a safe haven for journalists. There was a lot of trouble back then in that time because the then mayor of Mexico City, Miguel Angel Mancera, he was being quite aggressive towards the civil society and in particular to journalists. In Mexico, we are not accustomed to see the riot police attacking demonstrators, but in the first three years of his administration, he used a lot riot police against people and against journalists. But we had to complain about this, about beatings like you see now in the US a lot, or maybe unjustified 
detention, but not murder. And so when Ruben Espinosa and his friend, Nadia Vera, who was a human rights activist, they both left Veracruz and came to Mexico City trying to find refuge. And uh, when they were murdered, along with three other women in the flat where they were staying at, in the Narvarte middle-class neighborhood, it sent a very, very bad message. You know, it made us understand that even Mexico City was not safe enough as to protect us from powers in other regions. We all felt at risk of the long hands of state governors or state powers who wanted to kill us. It was very, very shocking to us back then. People really felt that there was nothing in this country that could protect journalists. Moises Sanchez was another journalist who lost his life in pursuit of the truth. Just how dedicated was Moises to the craft of journalism and making sure that he was doing so in a manner that was truly bringing information to the people? Yeah, he was a very, very interesting guy. He was humble, unknown, totally unknown. And uh, he used to do his own newspaper on photocopies because he used to live in a small place that was in the hands of organized crime and corrupt politicians and corrupt businessmen. But but he was away from everything. People didn't know what was happening there unless Moises would publish what was happening there in his very, very small newspaper or call reporters from bigger media, you know, like state media or even national media, so that they would know what was happening there. And the local powers hated that, and they tried to buy his silence. They offered him money. And when they couldn't do that, when he didn't accept, they resorted to murder, and, and a very, very horrible murder. You know, like he, he was at home sleeping. His uh, grandchildren were playing outside in the courtyard when maybe nine gangsters came in. They broke the doors. They took him away, and then they executed him. In, they dismembered his body. And so this was quite savage. Moises showed us that you don't need a lot of luxuries to do good journalism. When I was researching this and when I went to his home, at the same time, I heard about some issues that were taking place in a major newspaper where some journalists, they were demanding not bulletproof vests or not better cameras to do the work. They were demanding luxury cars and things like this, you know, and as if this was necessary to do good journalism. A very, very humble guy like Moses, he had a lot of idealism on the commitments of journalism. And after his murder, his son, his son wasn't a journalist. He was um, a graphic designer working for a lifestyle magazine. And he decided that they couldn't silence his father. They couldn't kill the story. They couldn't kill the truth. So he has taken to do what his father was doing. Is now doing this newspaper now on the internet, on a web page, on social networks. Of course, he's risking his life. But at the same time, he's trying to make that point. You know, you can't kill the truth by killing a journalist. It's very admirable of the son, and uh, you go deeper into that in this book. And while it's not totally clear why Moises was murdered, the final straw may have been a video he uploaded to YouTube just 19 days before his abduction. What was on this video? Yeah, I think that's one of the things that really made 
the local powers angry at Moises because people were tired for insecurity and people were tired that the local politicians and the local businessmen, they had a lot of protection from the Marines, from the local Marines. And so they demanded protection, security. They didn't get it. So they decided that they would arm themselves, but they didn't have like big weapons, you know, they had like machetes and like that. And they made this video that, well, actually Moises recorded it, this video where they were warning the criminals, don't come here, don't come to our neighborhood because we will be here waiting for you and we will go after you. And so this video was taken or picked up by national media and exposed how the levels of insecurity were too much for the local people, you know, in this neighborhood, in this area. This humiliated the local mayor and the state governor. And this was probably what finally pushed them to act against Moises. Pedro Canche was of Mayan descent and uncovered corruption in the state of Quintana Roo, the eastern part of the Yucatan Peninsula that contains from Cancun all the way down to Chetumal. Why was he jailed by Governor Roberto Borges? I think this is interesting for many people outside of Mexico, because when you speak of Mayan people, you think of people who lived 500 years ago or more. And actually, the Mayans are still there. And many people go to Cancun and they go to its beaches and have a nice time. And they don't think that there is someone who is suffering from marginalization, from poverty in this very area. And these Mayans, who are just still there as they were a long time ago, these Mayans are protesting because racism still exists in Mexico, and they are victims of this. So they protest, and Pedro Canche, who was a Mayan journalist, who is a Mayan journalist, I'm sorry, he videoed their protests, and he personally challenged Governor Roberto Borges to come out and debate with him and explain what was happening there. And Roberto Borges was a white person, very, very, very proud and arrogant. And he felt that how did this Mayan guy could dare to challenge him? So he ordered to put him in jail under phony charges. And they even tried to kill him, to murder him in the jail. Luckily, he was protected by other inmates who knew him and who regarded him as a very positive person who could help them to do things, you know, who could also help them to earn some money, like by waving hammocks or things like this. And then Amnesty International, Article 19, which is a a London-based international freedom speech organization, they helped to get Pedro out of the jail, but they had to literally smuggle him as he was left free and he left the prison, they had to smuggle him out of the state. Otherwise, the governor's uh, thugs, they would come after him and kill him. And the funny thing is that he had the chance, and this is quite rare, of exacting some kind of revenge on the governor, because this governor is also in jail today, but he was first jailed in Panama. He was staying at Panama's Trump International Hotel, And he was detained by Interpol there. He was jailed in Panama. And Pedro Canche went to visit him, asking for an interview. 
Governor Borges or former Governor Borges, he didn't want to give the interview, but then he made a mistake. He ended up in front of Pedro Canche and Governor Borges wanted the guards to expel Pedro Canche from the jail and the guards reminded him, you know, you are not the governor anymore. You are not even in the country. You are in jail and you cannot give orders here. That is hilarious. And it was a, a great bit of revenge for a guy who had yeah. been royally screwed over by Borges. Uh, what is Proceso? It's a paper that was founded in 1976. What is the importance of Proceso in this story that you're telling in killing the story? Yeah, in Mexico, journalism has always, always, I mean, historically been linked to power, to political power. It has always served that power. The idea of independent journalism came quite late, and it was very difficult for journalists to do journalism away from power. And power would see them as enemies, of course. So the most important attempt to do independent journalism in Mexico was launched in 1976 when they founded this weekly Proceso. And now there is a lot more investigative journalism than there was, but for many decades, Proceso was the beacon of journalism in Mexico. And of course, it had to suffer reprisals, like it suffered boycotts, like advertising boycotts, both from government and from business. Business didn't want to buy adverts on, on its pages. And even like former president, Jose Lopez Portillo, he said, I'm not going to pay them for them to beat me up. He didn't want to pay for criticism as if the public budget was his own budget, was his own money. Proceso is now living very, very tough times. First, the crisis of the industries, of, of the media industries, and then the crisis of the pandemics has put Proceso in, a, in very, very dire times. I don't know if he's going to make it out of this situation, but I think that if I wanted to provide the U.S. readers with a good portrait of what journalism is in Mexico, I had to show them what Proceso is. How instrumental has Proceso been in helping to develop young journalists? Well, yeah, many of the journalists that you can see today, both good and bad, because some of them actually sold out, they first started in Proceso. They did all their best works as journalists for Proceso. The problem is that it takes a lot to do independent journalism in Mexico. If you look at the people in, at Proceso, they are not rich people. Their salaries are quite in the middle, you know? I mean, if you want to make some money, then you won't be doing investigative journalism. And some of these guys understood this and they actually sold out. I'm thinking of Carlos Marin and others. So to me, because when I was in my university years, I was a conspicuous reader of Proceso and I would be reading these journalists it was a very big disappointment to see this. And now that I'm 50 years in the moment, I can tell the young readers, the young students of journalism, that it's not something that is going to happen to all of us. You know, It's not that we all have to sell out. And many of my colleagues are examples of that. There are like great journalists who refuse to sell out. And uh, this is part of what the story of Proceso tells us about how some people sell out, but others won't. 
Has technology made doing the job that it is that you and so many others are trying to do, has that made it easier for you to do that job and not have to worry as much about the consequences? Well, a lot of the journalism that is being done today is more like data journalism or they use the transparency laws to get some information that formerly was beyond our reach. And you can do that from your desk. And that's very important and has achieved a lot in this country, you know, by exposing corruption. But on the other hand, like street journalism cannot be forgotten. Street journalism is what allows you to tell what the people are living or suffering with the pandemics, you know, people who are confined to their homes, but they actually live on their daily earnings and they can't have them now. Or street journalism is the one that takes you to faraway regions, you know, where indigenous people are being exploited or are under duress. I think that technology helps a lot. It allows you to get a lot of information that used to be out of our hands, but also young journalists need to keep in mind that they have to get their boots dirty and go to where things are taking place and where people are suffering. And this is not something you are going to achieve by sitting on your desk. Very well put there. Former President Felipe Calderon's war on drugs in 2008 was utterly disastrous for Mexico. How did this play out along the border of the U.S. and Mexico, specifically in Juarez? Yeah, well, he launched what he calls a war. I don't like to use that word because of the same things we were talking about on the mythology of the narco. We put war on drugs in air quotes here in the U.S. too, Morris. Yeah. If you convince society that we are at war, then you will convince society that it has to allow you to use, to deploy security forces where they shouldn't be, to put massive budgets into public security and things like that. We are in a conflict, of course, but I have lived war. I have lived war in Iraq, in Syria, in Libya, in Gaza, and we don't have foreign airplanes bombing our cities and we don't have tanks on the streets. I mean, this is a different thing. Hmm. But yet he used the word war to justify the deployment of military in many places, starting from Ciudad Juarez, from Juarez, just across El Paso in Texas. And this meant not the end of violence, but exactly the other way around, you know. Violent killings rose in Juarez and security came to be felt by everyone in Ciudad Juarez. And this also meant that journalists who were used to different conditions, they suddenly found themselves in the crossfire. They found themselves hated by everyone, by openly criminal groups, but also by local police, by the military, and then they were persecuted and killed by them. Rocio Gallegos, who used to be the director of Diario de Juarez, a local daily, a very, very brave woman, she saw that, you know, she said like suddenly conditions had changed in the city and we were being killed, killed in the streets, killed for doing our jobs. They killed two of her colleagues from her daily, but also many others who worked for other papers. And the same could be seen along the border, you know, because the border were especially violent areas because those were like the jumping boards to the U.S., you know, for drugs, but also for human trafficking and also for U.S. arms and money coming into Mexico. And you could see in some places, journalists resisted, like in Juarez, but also in Tijuana, across San Diego in California, 
where the weekly Zeta, directed by another very, very brave woman, Adela Navarro, resisted. But in the state of Tamaulipas, which is just across the border from Texas, from Laredo and from Brownsville, the power of crime was so big that they forced the local media and the journalists to shut up. And that's why we call them sons of silence. Is political asylum a possibility for Mexican journalists along the border who are in trouble? Well, many Mexican journalists who have been threatened or even who have suffered beatings in attempts, many of these journalists have tried to ask for asylum in the U.S. But there are a lot of obstacles. Judges deny asylum and on the grounds that they don't believe that these journalists are actually at risk. And there is a lot of evidence provided there, but then this is not well taken by the judges. And this means that then these journalists have to go back to Mexico where they risk murder as well. What happened in Apatzingan, Michoacan, on January 6th, 2015? Yeah, this is one of the signs of good investigative journalism that is being done and how the powers that be try to stop it. There is a very, very courageous Mexican journalist, a female called Laura Castellanos. And she went to this town in the state of Michoacan to investigate the killings of 16 people. The federal police version was that these people had shot at them. And sometimes that they had even killed each other, you know, by friendly fire. What this lady found out, what this journalist found out by interviewing 41 witnesses, on record, on audio, was that it had been a massacre where the people who were killed, they didn't even have the weapons or the chance to defend themselves. They were just massacred by the federal police. But this took a while to go to the public knowledge. And this news was tried to be stopped. I mean, like this was going to be published in a very important Mexican newspaper. But people from inside the paper, they let the government know that it was to come up, that it was to come up, and they tried to stop it. And they ordered the paper to stop it, to not publish it. And the paper tried to do it. But then Laura Castellanos had the complicity of other people, of editors within the paper, and the support of the organization I mentioned already, Article 19. So they managed to go and publish it in a portal of journalist Carmen Aristegui, who had suffered, she had been expelled from radio before on the orders of then President Peña Nieto. So it was the reunion of two female journalists who were suffering censorship, and they gathered together to take this, this news out. And they did it in a, in a kind of tricky way because they got also the support of international media because if these small media outlets publish it, mainstream media in Mexico just don't pay attention to it. They just silence it. But they also got some international media to publish at the same time what Laura Castellanos had found. And this forced a public response from the federal government. And if the presidency responds to this, this forces national media, Mexican media, to talk about it and publish it. I mean, this was the way they found to create an echo chamber that will serve to take it to the public opinion instead of this news being silenced. 
Who are Las Rastradoras, a.k.a. the trackers? There are so many people who have disappeared in Mexico during these years of conflict. And the government just doesn't take care of trying to figure out what happened. There is a very illustrative example of this. When the 43 students of Ayotzinapa were disappeared by police and criminals in 2014, just a few days later, I went with other journalists to some clandestine graves where they had found 19 bodies. The suspicion was that these 19 bodies belonged to the students. But then the government said, no, we found out that these bodies don't belong to the students, so we will keep looking. And then other people who had relatives who had got missing, they said, hey, 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 authorities, but what if these bodies belong to my relative or to my friends? I mean, how come authorities can disengage themselves from investigating who these 19 bodies belong to? Who are they? What happened to them? How did they uh, killed and then clandestinely buried? And so this tells you a lot of what has happened in the country. So there are a lot of people who are looking for their relatives. They go to places where they believe that can be a clandestine grave and they dig them themselves. Las rastreadoras, the trackers, they are a group of women who are tracking their missing relatives in the state of Sinaloa. The state of Sinaloa must be 600 miles out of the border of Arizona. And this journalist, Javier Valdez, he went to find out what the trackers went doing, Las Rastreadoras, and he published articles on what they were doing, on the work, and he is the one who nicknamed them Las Rastreadoras, the trackers. And he was a journalist quite concerned with what was happening to simple people, to the sons of the people who had been killed, to the children of the people who had been killed, or just normal, regular people. And for this, he was quite appreciated and loved. He achieved an international level. In 2010, he was awarded the International Award for Freedom of Speech in New York by the Committee to Protect Journalists. And so this made us feel, it made him feel, that international exposure would somehow protect him from uh, violence, from persecution. And, well, as it happens, it wasn't like this. He published an interview that aggrieved some people in the organized crime, and then they executed him in the middle of the day in a very central street of Culiacán. Culiacán is the capital of the state of Sinaloa. Andres Manuel López Obrador took over as president on December 1st, 2018. Has his administration made legitimate efforts to make amends with and protect the free press? Yeah, I don't think so. I mean, I don't think, and this is a topic of debate right now, because groups of journalists who were close to power in previous administrations, you know, they are now unhappy because they used to enjoy huge budgets of public advertisement, advertising, and this is not happening anymore. So they are angry, and as Manuel López Obrador likes to engage in controversy with his critics. And this has helped them to claim 
that freedom of speech is at risk in Mexico. I don't think that just now freedom of speech is more at risk than it was before. I think that this president, I don't share his love for controversy. I don't share, I don't like it. But at the same time, he has a commitment to freedom of speech that hasn't been taken at heart as by previous presidents. But on the other hand, he may say a lot of things. He may say that he really wants to preserve the freedom of speech of people, but in the streets, journalists are being killed at the same rate as they were before. It is as dangerous now to go out to the streets to report on corruption, on human rights abuses, as it was before. I think that to believe that Lopez Obrador, his commitment to freedom of speech needs to be matched by actions at the level of the judicial system of justice, and we are not seeing that thus far. In your opinion, how can the government, through judicial system or otherwise, do a better job of protecting journalists? I think that if you can get away with murder of a journalist, you will feel compelled to keep doing that. If you know that there is this noisy or this annoying journalist that you would like to get rid of, you can actually kill him and nothing is going to happen to you, then you will just go after him or after her and take him out or take her out. And so I think that impunity is the key to help freedom of speech to be restored in this country. If those who want to kill journalists know that they will be investigated and prosecuted in jail, then they won't risk killing a journalist. They must know that you can't kill a journalist and get away with it. I'm curious to know if you have seen the Netflix show uh, Narcos Mexico, and if so, if you like the show, if there are things that you think the show got right, and maybe if you think there are things that the show got wrong. Well, actually, in Mexico, we are highly critical of what we call narco-series or narco-novels. As I was saying before regarding the narco-mythology, the word narco is a best-selling word. Mm. And so you can use narco in anything and you are going to sell a lot. And this is what happens with this narco series. They help to romanticize and depoliticize a very political and unromantic thing as the narco, you know? Maybe you remember when Sean Penn and this actress Kate Del Castillo, they came together to meet with El Chapo and they interviewed him and there was a lot of romance it was like a TV series, and that's not the reality. It should be considered by anyone who watches the series that they are just helping to normalize, to romanticize, and to depoliticize something that shouldn't be normal, that is not romantic, and that is highly political. Very well put. And final thing, you write that resignation to physical punishment is almost a job requirement for a journalist who's truly telling the truth in Mexico. What is the most physically threatened you've ever been doing what you do, either in Mexico or someplace else around the world? I wouldn't say it needs to be like that in the whole country, but in certain areas, you know, like Tamaulipas, in other areas. I have enjoyed a quite free professional life, and I can't complain about that, you know. I live in Mexico City, or I live elsewhere, you know, in other countries, but my practice is mostly in Mexico City. 
when I go to other Mexican states or I go to small places or dangerous, risky ones, I know that I can get in and then I make sure, because I'm cautious, I take cautionary measures, I make sure that I can go out. But the people I speak to, the local journalists, they stay there. And that's why I myself, but also with my group of colleagues, we always try to make sure that the focus is put on the people who are really at risk, the people who live in small places or work for small media, and they don't have so much exposure, and lives in areas where they do kill a lot of journalists. Like in this century, in these 20 years, we have only one murder in Mexico City, while they have tens of them in Veracruz or in Sinaloa or in Tamaulipas. Temoris Greco is a Mexican journalist and political scientist who has covered events in 94 different countries. His work includes two feature film documentaries, Watching Them Die and The Truth Shall Not Be Killed, as well as numerous books, the most recent of which is Killing the Story, Journalists Risking Their Lives to Uncover the Truth in Mexico. Temoris, thank you so much for the time today and thank you for this important book. Thank you so much, Trey, and I want to say hi, say hola to all your public. And thanks to you for listening today. A reminder that you can hear all of our episodes at booksonpod.com or by searching Books on Pod with Trey Elling wherever you listen to podcasts. If you're on Apple Podcasts, please do leave a five-star rating and review. It helps us grow the show. We'll talk to you next time on Books on Pod. Books on Pod.